Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast contains explicit language. You may remember him as the runner-up on that singing show. But now Clay Aiken has announced he's running for Congress in the great state of North Carolina. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And Sam, what we just heard was the amazing political coverage of TMZ. <laughs> yes. They were there when Clay Aiken announced that he was running for Congress in North Carolina. Not usually the treatment you get when you are running for the House of Representatives. But some say it's a total bonus. Like, the like Woodward, like Woodward. And Bernstein of celebrity gossip sites. They, they totally Exactly. Are. Anyways, they expressed <laughs> about as much confusion as virtually everyone else in humanity over Clay Aiken's run. Well, after all, he was best known as like a runner-up in American Idol and for a handful of pop hits. Ooh, Invisible, my favorite. Well, I mean, that was your song, your wedding song, right? Whoa. First Dance. That was a secret. Whoops. Okay. Well, he also just didn't strike you as the type of person who had any political aspirations. Yeah, I mean, most people assume that he was just doing this as an attention-grabbing stunt, but in actuality... It was way more complicated than that. Aiken had grown up with this intense interest in politics, and it was driven, he said, by this feeling of ostracism he felt as a gay man in the South. And he decided to run after seeing his community sort of ignored over the years by the political elite. Exactly. But what he found out about life on the trail is that it can be far more cruel than reality TV, and that it can try you in ways that you never expected, especially when an unforeseen tragedy hits. Beyond the Bluster... Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. I always loved politics. And I used to say, if you go on my mom's, if you could find my mom's old IBM PS1, you'd be able to, you'd be able to see campaign posters that I made for myself <laughs> when I was in, in middle school. And I remember the, the 92 election, I was in eighth grade. Um, and so, and it was, I guess, the year, you know, it was the year Clinton and Gore ran against Bush. And it was just a real big deal in social studies and whatnot. And I just really got involved and excited about or interested in politics that year for some reason. And that year, as a matter of fact, I coordinated and organized to have the two congressional candidates in my district come and speak to my eighth grade class. Really? And so, 
Yeah, and they both came. David Price, who's still uh, who's still in in Congress right now, was my congressman in eighth grade. Um, I've been gerrymandered back into his district um, since being in the second before, and so um, he came and spoke to my eighth grade class. And his campaign manager that year ended up being my consultant on my race. Uh, very small world. That year I did that, and then I also we had to write an article. We had to write a paper in eighth grade about someone we admired. And everybody, and I was so into politics at the time, everybody was totally doing something about their, you know, their youth minister, or their their dance teacher, or their mom or their dad or their scout leader. And I got really ballsy in eighth grade and called up Terry Sanford's office and asked uh, then Senator Sanford if I could come and speak to him. And he let me come to his office in Raleigh and I spoke to Terry Sanford and um did my paper on him, and I incredibly regret that I cannot find it somewhere. But um, I was, I was so, I was really still to this day, at, um, you know, 38 years old almost. I'm still fascinated and infatuated with Terry Sanford. So I've always had a little bit of a political interest, for sure. I, I'm mildly, I'm, I'm mildly impressed that you got the senator uh, on the phone there and to talk to. But I'm also a bit worried for eighth grade Clay Aiken. It feels like. Was this common or were you like sort of a outcast that you Oh, I was I was definitely an outcast. <laughs> and actually, you know what? To 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 the end of, you know, to to the point of this. Now that I'm not running anymore, I can say things I wasn't supposed to, but yes. my um my one of my consultants when I was running uh, in the primary said to me, you know, so tell me why you're a democrat because in the in the primary that's a big part of it. She said, "Tell me why you're a democrat." And I said, "Well, you know, I think probably I realized even in 92 that there was something about me that made me either different or an outcast. I didn't know I was gay at the time, but I kind of felt like there was something that made me an underdog somehow, you know, and I believed that Bill Clinton wanted to stick up for those people who are underdogs. And I believe that Democrats wanted to work for people who, who were, who needed needed support and needed a champion. And and so I sort of kind of really became a Democrat because of Bill Clinton and Al Gore and because of Terry Sanford and the fact that these were people who stood up for the folks who couldn't stand up for themselves in ways. And I think that I always somehow, even though I didn't know I was gay, knew that there was something going on um, and that made me need a champion. And that's why I wanted to be a Democrat. And I told that story to my consultant and she listened and she had a little bit of a tear in her eye and she said, that is amazing. Don't you ever tell that story to anybody on this trail. (laughs) (laughs) She, (laughs) She thought that, she said, I don't think that's necessarily a good idea on this very, very conservative uh, district. But I guess most people would hear would hear about, you know, politics and and hear about Washington and wonder, like, why would you ever want to be part of that? But I guess this was all came from from your from your childhood, from eighth grade, from Bill Clinton. Um, Well, I don't know that that's necessarily true either. I mean, I didn't run for Congress because I wanted to be in Congress. My reason for running in this R11 district was probably a lot different than most people who run. Um, I knew that it was a seat that I probably wouldn't win. Uh, and I knew that it was going to be a real hell of a challenge to even be taken seriously. But I ran because I also knew the person who was the incumbent was the opposite of David Price. And she, you know, she got elected sort of accidentally. Um, she got her seat by a thousand votes in a very big Republican sweep year. 
and then she kind of didn't show back up anymore. Even before you were running, when there was this sort of speculation, she went on the radio and like basically called you a two-time reality show loser. Yes. And she said that your your career must be really, as a singer, must be really struggling if you wanted to jump into politics or you must be bored. And She's what... all class. <laughs> <laughs> what did, I mean... Did you sort of realize at that point that you were in for some kind of public shaming at this point? or like? Are you kidding me? I've been in the public eye for 14 years, and every one of those years has been public shaming. So I didn't necessarily think it was going to be anything new. Um, no, I think, I think if anything, it just made me—it it reaffirmed my decision to run. Was there also a part of you that thought, God, she's being very uncreative in her put-downs. Like, I've heard it all, and this is the lamest thing I've I know, ever heard. Right, right. Well, that, totally uncreative. And then her, when I did finally announce, the very first response from her campaign was, Clay Aiken represents San Francisco values more than Sanford values. And I was like, good God, why didn't you just call me a fag? It would, it would have saved you some ink. I mean, you know? What was, like, the first time where you thought to yourself, uh, I don't know what I'm doing? Um, well, that for me, it was day one <laughs> for, for the first time that I realized, oh, crap, wait a second. What's going on? This isn't as easy as we thought it was. I remember I was doing I did an NPR interview uh, in, in Raleigh and I came out of the studio and we had just gotten our poll numbers back. We had polled at the very beginning and knew that we had, you know, we were 30 points up. And then our primary opponent started running a lot of ads. And so we decided, you know what, we should probably go ahead and poll again to see if we have maintained this substantial lead over him. And I came out of that NPR interview um, that day, and uh, Gene Conti was standing out there, and he said, okay, we got the poll numbers back, and it's not great. And he said that we had – that. Keith had closed the, the gap to around 1%. Whoa. And I went, holy I mean, I couldn't, I mean, I went, oh my God. And that was the first moment that I thought, holy crap, I may lose this. But Clay, you were also sort of, not sort of, you were a newbie to electoral politics. And, you know, despite interviewing Senator Sanford and being super into it in eighth <laughs> you grade. You mean I wasn't a pro already? Yeah, I wasn't a <laughs> And so, as I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I read things where you, you would make sort of these, I, I want to call them tactical mistakes, where, for instance, like you gave an interview to someone you thought was a reporter who had, actually was a job applicant one time. And I, I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, if I had to jump into the campaign without having ever done it before, I bet I'd make those types of missteps, too. So, you know, was it hard to adjust to that different type of life? You know what? Even still, and, and I'll be the first to admit that I am, I was and still am a newbie to the whole campaigning electoral process. But to some degree, there's not a huge difference between campaigning and being a, a entertainer in a way. I mean, yeah. so, Steve Israel, when I when I sat down with the DCCC for the very first time, said, uh, politics is, is entertainment, is show business for ugly people. And uh, <laughs> I mean, St Steve Israel is the chair at the time of the DCCC, congressman correct. from New York. Right. And uh, he said, um, he very said ugly. that. And I, <laughs> and I said. Not really that ugly. He's not. No, no. <laughs> um, and I thought, uh, you know, it really sort of is in a way. You really, everybody wants you to, when you're in entertainment, everybody wants to be liked. And when you're in politics, you want people to like you. And there's certainly a, a dance that you do with the press. And to me, in a way, I think the campaign initially and even, even right up to the end was how do, you, how do you manage that public persona of yourself? How do you get people to like you? And so to some degree, I 
felt I was already had been through a little bit of fire when it came to that. And, and the parts of campaigning that I liked the most and I think I was the most successful at were the ones where I was in front of people, I was talking to people, I was, I was explaining my positions or why I was running. The behind-the-scenes stuff, the way the, the buses run, that, yeah, absolutely completely new to it. And it's mostly just asking for money. Well, you described uh, there was asking for money as one problem, and then I think the other problem I think is fair to say is that uh, you had to overcome uh, voter perceptions of yourself as an entertainer, the runner-up uh, for American Idol, and I believe you described it as climbing the quote "fuck mountain." And what the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> oh, mountain? the what the fuck what mountain? The fuck okay, mountain, yeah. so uh, Jason, I want to know what is the what the fuck mountain? Please elaborate. I, I called it What the Fuck Mountain because that was the reaction that I think people had. I mean, I like to be self-aware, and I didn't imagine for a second that people thought, oh, Clay Aiken's running for Congress. That's a great idea. I think people's first reaction was always, what the fuck? Is, is, he, doing, <laughs> is he doing running for Congress? Was there, like, a perception of, like, that you had to be, of that maybe you were running and you weren't maybe as sincere or as authentic a, a politician because you were on Idol, because you were an entertainer? Is that what the issue was, you think? Because it did no. seem, no. No, I don't think that there was that. I mean, I think that, I mean, at least that's not what the polling showed. I, I hate that I rely on polling for anything. But, but I mean, the polls certainly showed when we asked people comparing me to her even, who's more trustworthy? I was far more trustworthy, or at least the, the perception was. And who was more authentic? It was me. And who was more likable? It was me. It was just, I like him. I trust him. I really think his heart's in the right place, but I think he's an idiot. You know, I think he needs to go back to singing. I don't think we ever had the challenge with people who didn't think that my heart was in the right place. And I told people, I mean, I had Republicans come up to me en masse, after, even after November, and say, listen, I think you should run again. Don't run in our district <laughs> because we don't agree with you. And I had a lot of people who would come up to me before and say, listen, I'm a Republican, and I think that you, you've really impressed me, and you've, you've shown me that you really know what you're talking about. I'm not going to vote for you because I don't agree with you, and I think you'll vote with Obama. But I think you've done, you know, you've, you've changed my opinion of you. And so I think we certainly climbed the mountain within the second district and within the Raleigh-Durham market and within the Greensboro market. But um, it took a lot of work and really, really trying to, to completely tone down everything. I refused to sing, and I had people in the general who wanted me to do a concert to get to raise money and a concert to get attention. And I said, I'm not doing that. I mean, how do you, how do you convince people that you're qualified and smart enough to do this? And then when you're singing... Build me up buttercup somewhere, yeah. you know? Well, I mean, that seemed to be a constant friction. I mean, on the one hand, you need to be taken seriously, and you don't want to be Clay Aiken the entertainer. On the other hand, there are certain benefits from being an entertainer, right? Like, right. you can, you know, there's celebrity, there's fundraising. Um, talk a little bit more deeply about that friction, and what was, like, the worst moment where you just had to tell people, absolutely no way I'm doing that? <laughs> You'd be surprised. I'm pretty, most people don't argue with me. <laughs> I mean, I usually make it pretty clear right up front I'm not doing it. I never really had to say no, no, no too much. Um, I certainly got pressure from people to, you know, it would really be great if you would sing, but I think from day one they knew this was really a non-starter for me. I'm not going to do it. And and there were moments between my finance um, director and my campaign manager and the general where I could just feel their frustration. They knew they couldn't ask me to do that. Um, and 
they really wanted to, and so we compromised in certain ways. And I, we held a fundraiser, and Ruben uh, and Fantasia, both from Idol, came and, and came to the fundraiser, which helped us raise some money. So we, I tried, I tried to be nice and find ways to use the, use the celebrity and use the, the, entertainment aspect um, to help us, but to be in it, but not of it. I'll admit, I was incredibly self-conscious about the the policy thing and the what the fuck mountain to me was maybe even a bigger deal than it was to a lot of other folks. And I think that um, my campaign manager during the general, I think, was just really rock solid and was really great. Um, and And I think there were certainly times where I listened to her opinion and said, I'm not doing it that way simply because you know, to, to her, who ran a lot of campaigns, who knew what she was doing, it was just about raise money, get ads on TV, raise money, get ads on TV. Who cares if people hear you talk about policy? Who cares if people hear you talk? It's just about being on TV and raising money. And, you know, in hindsight, yeah, she probably she probably was right about that. I kind of feel like what you're describing is like a sense of ruthlessness, like you got to do this, this and this you know, quit the hand-wringing, let's just do this, this is our path to victory. Do you think that, that you lacked, at, at least during this campaign, this, the, the sense of the juggler going for the juggler, being ruthless? Yeah, I mean, I think I, think I ran the campaign that I wish campaigns were like. Um, and, and that speaks to my na- naivete. Uh, I ran a congressional campaign that I that I believed I believed in because I watched West Wing too much, you know. Oh no, you fell into the Sorkin madness. <laughs> right. And I and I I thought, okay, listen, we're gonna run a campaign like Terry Sanford did. <laughs> we're gonna get around the district and we're gonna talk to people and they're gonna see us everywhere and we're gonna go to fairs and whatnot. And 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 the truth is, yeah, people don't care anymore about that. I mean, I wish they did, but they don't. They just sit at home and they don't give a shit until three weeks before and they look at the ads and whoever's ad is the nastiest, you know, and convinces them that the other person's evil, that's going to work. Were there times where you feel like you had to hold back or compromise or just quiet yourself during the campaign? Um, certainly, and and I have thought about that uh, ever since and thought, would I do it differently? I don't know that I would. Um, certainly, the, the gay issue um, actually didn't come up um, until, and I told I told Gene Conti this in, uh, in the spring. I said, you know what? My luck is... Nobody's going to talk about gay marriage. Nobody's going to talk about the gay issue whatsoever. And then come October, they're going to overturn uh, the ban. <laughs> and then that's all it's going to be until the election. And lo and behold, right then, <laughs> right four, three weeks before the, the election, uh, the, the ban was overturned in North Carolina. And that became a big part of, of the discussion. And I had no choice but to talk about it. And, and I think mm, certainly everybody knew I was gay. Um, Stevie Wonder can see that I'm gay, but, uh, (laughs) and people do that, (laughs) but I certainly answered the question. I obfuscated, you know, I've said, I don't think Hillary Clinton is dishonest. I don't, I may be, I may be alone, but I don't, I think she's just very good at obfuscation. 
And I think she's very good at answering like a lawyer. And I think that I probably did that too much in that gay question. And when people asked me, what do I feel about um, the, the fact that the Supreme, that the, the Fourth Circuit overturned North Carolina's uh, gay marriage ban? And my answer was, well, you know what? We haven't heard the end of this yet because the Supreme Court has not weighed in yet. And that was true, right? Yeah. Um, it hadn't, we hadn't heard the end of it. And the Supreme Court would weigh in, and thank God they did, and did it the way I wanted them to. But I wonder if, by saying it that way, what I thought was going to make the true, true conservative— I mean, the true conservatives certainly heard that and thought, well, he's full of shit. And I believed and hoped that the moderates, yet conservative moderates, would hear it and say, okay, well— at least he didn't say, yay, gay marriage, let's all get gay married. Okay, let me hear what he has to say about the other thing. And my position was always, if I can try my best not to lose them on this question, then I might get them to listen to me on other questions, um, on other issues. And so I tried really hard not to just say, hell yeah, I'm glad they overturned it, and y'all are bigots for voting for it, you know, um, and, and I probably wouldn't say it that way <laughs> still if I ran again. But I think that on that question, um, maybe I should have just said, listen, everybody knows I'm gay. <laughs> it's not a secret. Everybody knows I'm happy that this thing was overturned. But that's not why I'm running. At one point, you did say that, uh, quote was, this is not a place to be gay. Um, well, yeah. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, <laughs> 70% of people in the 2nd District voted for the same-sex marriage ban. And even in the primary, I found that was a challenge. Um, even amongst Democrats, that was an issue for me. And my opponent ran some very, um, how shall we say, you know, coded ads about how he was the family values candidate or how he was the family man. And that really upset some of the, some of the more staunch liberals. But in, a, in, a, in the South, where African-Americans take, make up a huge chunk of the Democratic primary vote, that's still an issue where, you know, gay people are not necessarily supported as much. I think it's certainly come around. And I, I certainly think that I got um, quite a bit of support from African-American churches and African-American voters in the 2nd District. Um, and, and again, I think we did 1% better than, than Barack Obama did, which is not saying much, by the way. But um, so, so clearly they, they came out and voted for me, or at least against her. But, um, but it's not necessarily a home run like it would be in a, you know, if you ran as a gay man in a liberal district in Washington state, no one would care, and they'd probably vote for you because you were gay. Here it was a question for people. You know, there were, it was something that voters, even in the Democratic primary, had to think about. One, because a lot of them didn't like it. And two, because even those folks who had no problem with it whatsoever really tried to calculate, okay, can he win a general election here when he's a gay man? Well, let's talk about the primary a little bit. Uh, so Keith Crisco, your opponent, he, he runs an ad called No Show Clay Aiken, accusing you of skipping mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. on a commission on kids with disabilities. And I, I think I saw an Esquire somewhere that, on the one hand, you know, it was just brutal. It was a brutal ad. But on the other hand, you seemed almost uh, impressed by 
how well it was executed. Oh my god, and... it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a really great. Ad. I mean, listen, like I said, negative ads are what work, you know. And if you can make a negative ad that sticks in people's minds, granted he ran it one hundred and fifty thousand times, which helped, but. I mean, the way they even the way they wrote the words on the screen, they called me no show Clay Aiken, and the way they wrote the words no and Clay were right next to each other and big and show and Aiken were smaller underneath, so it was like no Clay, show Aiken, and and people and they kept calling me no show Clay, which it's same way and that listen I don't I'm gonna digress here for a second and say I do not think that Donald Trump has a strategy and I know the man. Um, he ain't got a damn strategy. He just talks out of his ass, and he just happens to be somewhat adept at branding. You know, that's what he's made his life out of. Lion Ted Cruz. Lion Ted Cruz. Little Marco. Little Marco. He does those things, and you make people think Lion Ted Cruz. It's a great branding strategy. I don't think he necessarily thought, let me think of how I can brand Ted Cruz. I think he just naturally, instinctively knows how to brand, but that works. And and Keith Crisco branded me No Show Clay. And and we heard, I heard people call me No Show Clay to my <laughs> face during the campaign, and I thought, what in the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Seriously, especially because he was saying that I didn't show up for kids with disabilities. I've had, I mean, half of my life at the very least has been dedicated to working with kids. I mean, that's what my degree is in. That's what I did before I did Idol. I've got a foundation for kids with disabilities now. But he was able to convince people who didn't know that, first of all. It's, I mean, admittedly, not everybody knows that. But he was able to convince them that I don't care about kids with disabilities. And, I mean, 30 seconds is all it takes and a nice, really well-produced ad is really all it takes. But I like the fact that you were impressed by it. I mean, it, was it surreal to watch it and also be like, wow, damn, that's good. And, it's, and it's you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, when I watched it, I was like, shit. I mean, I think my impress, me being impressed came a little later. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> Because after I, after I said, fuck you, um, <laughs> it, was, it was just realizing, damn, that thing is going to kill us because it's just not only am I upset because you're running it, but I'm upset because it's going to work. But when the president appointed Aiken to the Committee on People with Intellectual Disabilities, no show Clay Aiken skipped every single meeting, eight out of eight. So I just want to build up a little drama here. Uh, the primary gets really close. Yeah. You're being outspent. Uh, Three to one. Yes. And then the primary night itself seemed incredibly stressful on you describe that night go through the uh go through the day for us oh my god so much more stressful than anything including the general which we hadn't gotten to yet but um i mean it was it was to me just just even thinking about it if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Got a little chill, maybe because I'm getting sick, but, <laughs> but um, I, uh, God, I'm just, I'm stra- it's stressful to talk about it now. It was not supposed to be a problem, you know? It was going to be such, I mean, the polls, the first polls showed We're going to win this by 20 points. It was so easy. And then, like I said, I didn't even, I found out a week and a half before that it was down to one point or it was very close. I think it was maybe two in our poll, but I didn't even have time to prepare for how much I might lose this. And so that day, it really became real, not only that I could lose it, but that, you know, I, I had to make a very conscious decision to leave entertainment in order to do this. You know, you can, I don't think you can, I don't think you can be a, a singer where you kind of want to appeal to everyone and then all of a sudden throw a D behind your name. You lose people immediately. You put that D behind your name and in this climate, at least 40% of Americans say screw you. And I made a conscious decision to leave the, the, the business I was in in order to do this and knowing that I probably couldn't go back. To realize that I had done that may not be able to go back to it. And I might not even get to do what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't want to run against Keith Crisco. I wanted to expose Renee Elmers. I wanted to make people pay attention to her. And I may be done in May. It was, it was incredibly stressful that this could all be over tonight. The whole election day, you, you seem, I mean, from, from watching the Esquire uh, show, you seem like super tense. You didn't really know what to do. Uh, you would drive to polling places looking for signs and freak out if there weren't any signs. I mean, it seemed like, you know, it was really, <laughs> it was really, <laughs> it was really hitting you that like, just to be, be clear, over. just to be clear, I freaked out if there weren't signs the whole time, not just the last day. <laughs> so that was like an ongoing obsession. You know, what's crazy, what, what's crazy though, is everybody says signs don't vote, don't use signs, don't use signs. You look stupid if you're using signs, but if you're a candidate, you want those fucking signs. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? It makes you feel better. It makes you feel like people know you're running. And I'm like, nobody needs to know my name. Signs are really for people like Keith, where nobody knows their name. And when you go to the poll, and I've done it, and you've done it, I'm sure, too, if you mm-hmm. don't know who's running for water commissioner, you look at it, and you realize, oh, well, I saw that sign. I'll vote for that person. Um, and so I just wanted to see them. I wanted to feel like I was running a real campaign. And real campaigns have signs, damn it. And real campaigns are 
ever-present within the district because everyone sees that you're running for Congress. And I just, and I, I don't think I'm alone in this, and I've been told by every person who works on campaigns that I'm certainly not the only candidate who wants their signs everywhere, but I wanted those damn signs out. And, 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 I, th- and I look back at it now and laugh at myself because they told me that I was going to want signs. They told me several things before the campaign started, and I laughed at them and said, no, I'm not going to care, or that's not going to happen. <laughs> and lo and behold, they were right. I wanted those damn signs out there. They also told me I would gain weight, and I'm not kidding you. I, I gained 30 fucking pounds. Oh, everyone, everyone gains Jesus. weight on the campaign trail. That's, a, Unbelievable. that's a what was your What was your diet? What was your daily diet? Well, I ran in a very rural district too, so pretty much everyday bojangles, because you can't, you don't get out of the car. I mean, you're in the car all the time, so it was fast food, and then of course every event you go to, people have put food out for you. You know, they've prepared food for you, and it's good, but if you don't eat it, you look rude. So I just had to keep stuff in my face. Thirty pounds. I'm there, it's gone now. Just let's be clear. But. <laughs> What did you order? At, well, did you have like a regular thing you ordered at Bojangles? Oh, yeah, we got the, I got the four-piece supreme dinner <laughs> and dirty rice. <laughs> is, there, is there a healthy option at Bojangles? I nope. don't think so. No, I yeah. think nope. the salad well, it's, comes with a hamburger. You, you convince yourself, you convince yourself that it's, it's healthy because it's chicken. So you win the primary election, okay? And eventually, after all that tension, you win the primary election. And then, well, tragedy kind of happens, and Crisco dies. Yeah. How soon? Was it like the next day? Well, you know, unfortunately, I mean, this is going to sound, I'm going to sound like a real jackass here. He, I can't even say it, though. He died, he died at a, at a, God, I'm going to want you to edit this out so bad, but I'm not going to make you. <laughs> he died a very unfortunate time for me <laughs> because, because he died before he conceded, but before the race was called also. Um, and huh. so while I did win based on votes because of when he died, a good percentage of people believed that I won because he died. Um, so a lot of people to this day, I mean, I still have people tell me that, you know, they think that I won because he died. Um, and, and we won by votes, but the, the actual, the day that he, he died the day before the votes were certified that I had won. So the news said Clay Aiken, um, certified winner in the primary today, Keith Crisco died. It sounded as if though I won because he died instead of winning on my own, and then unfortunately he died also. Well, how is a? Uh, it's a bit of a uh, crass question here, but how as a politician do you go about handling something that tragic and rare? I don't think you have. I don't think you can do it as a politician. I mean, there, there, you. Ha- I mean, you do it as a person, right? You. I couldn't. I couldn't, I can't think of many times in my life when I've been speechless, as, as evidenced by today. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a problem talking. But I, I, I cannot remember ever being speechless. But that day, we were sitting at a restaurant with Betsy Conti, the consultant, and we were looking for campaign managers for the, for the, for the general and actually interviewing someone who I was hoping would be. Uh, we were sitting at a restaurant in Raleigh, and... Betsy got a phone call, and she looked at me, and she said, Keith Crisco died. 
And we just all said, stop. <laughs> you know, there's no, and she said, no, I'm serious. He died. I can't even, oh, God. I don't even know what to say. I mean, you don't know what to say. And I was dead silent for maybe an hour um, because there's so much, no matter what you do in life, you know, no matter how, it's just so much regret, really. I liked him, and I had nothing against him, but I became someone who I don't like in that I started to not like him uh, because it was just very personal. Like I said, primaries become very personal, and I really just wanted to beat Keith, and I don't like that about myself because I didn't want to even, I, I didn't even want to beat Reuben, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, but I just wanted to beat Keith. And I didn't like that about myself. And I never, there was never, and, and again, this sounds incredibly selfish because who am I to be bothered by my lack of closure when he has children and a, and a wife and grandkids that didn't get closure with him? But, you know, I never got to tell him that I have a lot of respect for him. And I never got to, to you know, apologize for the fact that at times I wasn't nice to him. I mean, I never was openly, publicly not nice to him, but there were moments when I would kind of be cold to him in person. You know, you always kind of pretend that you like some. Hell, I got pictures of me smiling next to Renee Elmer, and I can't stand that bitch. But, um, <laughs> uh, oh, God, you're definitely not going to edit that. I don't know. Horrible. That's not going in. That's good branding. <laughs> but I, um, but, you know, you try to be nice to somebody in public, but I didn't want to be around him. I didn't. And, and so you kind of just have to handle it as a person. And I said, I mean, bottom line, take everything down, the, shut the campaign off just because, not only because I think it's the right thing to do, but because I'll feel dirty if my campaign website is still up um, and I'll feel like a bad person. Um, and and we, we calculated whether or not I would, you know, go to the funeral um, and and sort of opted not to uh, simply because I didn't want to be involved in the news. Owing to the very bizarre circumstances and timing of his death, I'm assuming there were a lot of people who had developed uh, very crazy conspiracy theories about your role in Mm. it all. Nah. No, I don't think so. I mean, there were certainly jokes. I don't think there were anybody, I mean, bad jokes in poor taste, yeah. But, you know, I think that, and and I hate to say this on, on a nationally syndicated, uh, you know, syndicated podcast, but but I there was the story initially was that he had he had fallen and hit his head and died, um, and and the reality was that he had a heart attack, um, and and I think that at least initially nobody really wanted people to know that he had a heart attack, um, because, and I think that's what that that tears me up more almost that. He had a heart attack, and I and I can't help but wonder. Um, okay, hold on. I'm going to do this without crying. <laughs> um, I I I wonder if his family hates me. Um, I hope not, but but I can't help but wonder if one has a heart attack after they spend seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and still lose to that little queer, you know. Um, when he he was far more qualified for it, um, at least on paper, and and so that you know, okay, I got to stop talking about it. <laughs> did you, I mean, did you reach out to his family after he passed away? No, and 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 I, 
I, um, Is that something that you regret did not doing? I reached out to them immediately after he passed away through surrogates mm-hmm. um, to explain and, and, you know, just to make sure that they understood why I wasn't coming to the funeral and why I wasn't doing anything. Um, so, I, I know, I, I reached out to, to Jane that way, um, not, not personally. Um, I have almost every month even still here a year, two years on now, almost two years since he passed away, um, have, have wondered if I have thought about wanting to, to see her because um, I knew her. I mean, I, I met her. She's very, you know, she, was, she didn't like the limelight of the attention and so she didn't show up to many things, but, um, but I met her and, I, and I've always kind of wanted to just kind of express my sympathies and my respect for him. Um, but you know, there's a part of me that thinks they got to hate me and I don't really, yeah. And that's a, yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) Did it feel weird to have to go through surrogates and as opposed to just maybe calling her up or stopping by their house? No, no. Um, I mean, to be completely honest with you, I didn't have the balls. I mean, I ain't gonna lie. I, in, in the moment after, in the days after it happened, I, you know, that, ha- that happened, we were in a restaurant. Um, we immediately went to an office building downtown where I stayed for probably seven hours with, with people who were either paid consultants or just consultants who were friends who wanted to be, to try to help us figure out what was going on at the time um, and make sure that I was handling things the correct way. And, and it was in that, that meeting when we decided, you know what, let's let Gary reach out to, to them for you. And, and, and I was thankful. I didn't, I, I, I hate to admit that I am not sure I was man enough at that moment to call her right then because I, 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 listen, I don't think she hates me today. I hope she doesn't. I hope the family, his kids don't hate me today. They might still, but I'm sure they did that day. He had spent his last three months of his life away from them. He canceled a vacation that he and his wife had. had planned to go to Cuba, actually. Um, and, and he canceled that vacation to, to stay on the trail and run against me. And I, the last three months of his life were stressful and not enjoyable, and I was the blame for that. Was there a point ever where you're like, I could win this general election? Because the odds are pretty against you. Oh, yeah. Listen, I've said more than anything, you live in a bubble when you're on a campaign. Um, and and you don't realize, you, I mean, reality, you get removed from reality. Um, because interestingly, you know, the only one of the challenges we had in our in our town hall meetings that I wanted to set up was that really the only people who come to a town hall most of the time are people who anybody who's anybody who's active enough to come to a town hall meeting in September or early October or hell even late October probably already knows who they're voting for they're already active enough I mean I know who I'm voting for in the general right now and 
Trump. You know, and Trump. most people who right. do, if you know already, it's because you pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, and the people who you need to get to are the ones who aren't paying attention enough, which is why I realized that's why ads are important now. <laughs> but I wanted to be in front of people. And when you're in front of folks and you walk down the street in Southern Pines, downtown Southern Pines, which is one of the most beautiful and yet most Republican cities and towns in the country, <laughs> um, and Republicans come up to you. And I had them all the time. I'd walk down the street and I'd have 10 Republicans come up to me, run up. Oh, my God, I want to take a selfie. Listen, I, I am a Republican, but I'm voting for you. You don't realize that for everyone who does that, there are 50 behind your back flipping you off. And because most of the people who aren't going to vote for you don't have the balls to tell you. Now, listen, I had a few people who did. I had, I had, I had one woman and and and. I had one woman, and I actually hate, and I don't really think about or talk about those people who had cameras around me all the time, but I do regret that they were not caught up with me at the moment. I had a lady in Southern Pines. I was walking down the street one day and uh, headed back to the, to the car or the bus or whatever we were riding, and we're walking down the street, and the lady at the intersection right in front of us was at a stop sign, and she was probably 50 yards in front of us, and she looked down, and she said, Clay Aiken. And I said, yes. And she said, are you Clay Aiken? And I said, yes. And I walked up. And of course, I'm thinking, yay, I've got a voter. Let me talk to her. <laughs> and I get right up to her. And she said, you are Clay Aiken. Nope. And I went, huh? She said, I ain't voting for your ass. <laughs> and I went, well, thank you very much. I, pre I don't need you anyway. <laughs> and I walked off. And I thought, I, you know what? At least I have respect for her for having the balls to say it to my face. Because most people don't. Yeah. And so you do think you have a chance to win. Because... 99% of the people who come up to you are people who like you. You you surround yourself with people who tell you that you're going to win. You surround yourself with people, A, the people who are who are supporting you when you're volunteering on your campaign think you're going to win. The people who are coming to your rallies think you're going to win. And the people who are working for you as consultants are telling you you're going to win because you got to spend more money and they want it. So you live in a bubble. And there were moments when I thought I was going to win. And there was actually a poll at one point that showed that the gap between between uh, Renee and I was down to 8%. I still to this day want to know what the hell they, who the hell they were asking <laughs> um, <laughs> because that damn thing gave me some hope that was not needed. <laughs> well, well, at what point did the bubble start to burst for you? At what point did reality start to sort of catch up? Um, I mean, I, I, I think it would be, I think I would, I would be, lying if I said that I lived in a bubble the whole time or I, that, I, that I walked into election night in a bubble. You know, there were certainly moments when I thought, holy shit, we could win this. Or I'll be damned, it's eight points. Wow, look at us. We're really doing good. Let's keep working. Let's get this ad up, et cetera. Um, I mean, I don't think that there was, again, again, I told you, I didn't, I didn't expect to start this campaign and then on November end up as a as a candidate, as as a congressman, again, you know, Obama lost the district by a little over nineteen percent. Yeah, I think nineteen and a half percent. We, we talk lost about it Obama. By a Let's talk about 19. Obama a little bit mm -hmm. because Obama seemed to be a bit of a weight on you. Um, and I uh, would be remiss if I didn't bring up uh, one of the more humorous debate moments for us was when Renee Elmers. Uh, said you were uh, going to perpetuate the Obama-Aiken economy. This Obama-Aiken economy is just killing us. Has Congress done enough to boost the economy? No. What should they do? Something. Anything. They don't do anything. 
Congresswoman Elmers, you might need to get a new writer uh, because calling it the Obama-Aiken economy is just preposterous. I have nothing to do with pro President Obama. I can, I can count several rate places that I disagree with him. She's such a damn idiot. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> what did you think when she said that? I don't, I don't, I wish I knew what was, I, I, I have actually not watched the debate. I think I, I don't watch myself on TV anyway, but I, I certainly can't watch that. The only, and in fact, I haven't seen the entire documentary because it was so uncomfortable to watch. So I don't know what my face was like when she said that comment, <laughs> but I know that in debate prep, that was one of the notes that I got was stop making so many faces because I've got a very expressive face. And so <laughs> I hope that I didn't roll my eyes at her when she said that. <laughs> well, I think it was pretty, you were pretty poker face. Okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I took a Xanax then too. But what, was um, going through, what was going through your head? Well, I'm sure I just thought, I think I probably just thought jackpot. Thank God you said something stupid like that. And in that room when she called it the Obama-Aiken economy, you could hear the people in the audience groan. And, mm -hmm. and laugh at it. Even Republicans thought that was the stupidest damn thing she could <laughs> I mean, Give me a... Well, what, well I mean, in, now that we have you here... I mean, you have would, been serving as his Treasury Secretary. What, what, <laughs> what would an Obama-Aiken economy look like? Yeah, good question. Well, I think the Obama... Well, hell, the Obama economy's done, done pretty damn well. <laughs> but we're asking about the Obama-Aiken. I hope that I hope that I would... I hope <laughs> that with working... In working with me, that President Obama could be at least as great as he has been already. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that was real political. That was very Yes, well. it was. You, you Said you've arts, done the campaign, said, I get it. You said yeah. more arts funding. Yeah, yeah, yeah something. Um, so tell us what election day and night are like. Uh, the bubble maybe still is intact, I don't know. But uh, at some point it has to fully burst, and I want to know what it was like to watch as the results come in. Um, uh, I'm probably not as going to be as dramatic and exciting as some of the other people who you've talked to on this podcast because I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't devastated you know, I joked. I've, 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 it may have sounded like a joke, but it was absolutely true that I was on Xanax on the primary election <laughs> night, and it was absolutely true that I had taken Xanax for the debate. I didn't take anything the the, front, the last night. I mean, I didn't need it. I, I, our primary, our election day. <laughs> our election day began exactly as it ended. We had a we had a campaign bus um, that we had been taking around the district for almost for three weeks, almost a month, and. Um, <laughs> the morning, <laughs> the morning of the election, we cranked it up to do what we had been doing every other day, and I lived on it. And we were gonna hit every single town. And our plan for election day was to hit as many polling places and be around the district on that bus as much as we could, and show people we were gonna be everywhere. And I'll be damned if that fucking thing didn't break down in the middle of the road <laughs> first thing on election day morning. Oh my god! <laughs> and I said, "Is there a me there's a metaphor in there?" I there's think. such a metaphor. It was it was so it was so, and it's and it's in the middle of of a major road in the middle of Cary and <laughs> and we had to get our stuff off the bus and walk across traffic <laughs> with our stuff in our hands to a waiting Prius that was going to take us where we needed to so I could go vote and I thought that that is literally that's a walk of shame right there and it was such a metaphor for and I think even the news of course the news just they chomped on that bit right there. They, they, I think they took a helicopter, a chopper over the, over the broken down bus <laughs> on the street. <laughs> the news helicopters were, were hovering over looking at it. And it was, you know, so most people, when they lose an election, or most people we've talked to, I would say they kind of, you know, go into a, a cocoon. They, they kind of don't want to see people or talk to people for a little bit that, you know, they've put so much of their emotional energy 
not to mention financial resources and time and energy, their family's time into this process. And when it's done and they don't come out victorious, it's really tough. For you, it sounds maybe a little bit different that you had, you know, readied yourself for this moment more so than a lot of other people. So was it tough when the next day came and you were no longer campaigning or was it a relief? The second, the day after the campaign was to this day the strangest day of my entire life. It was un, I mean, I, it was seven days a week. It was 18-hour days some days. Um, it was every day, all day, especially the last two months. And then I woke up on the 5th, or whatever day it was. Oh, shit, I don't have anything to do. I called up my camp communications director and said, um, you want to go see a movie? <laughs> and we went to a movie that afternoon. Because we obviously, we still had, st we still had what movie? some work. What movie? We went to see, we, I just gayed it right up. I was like, I ain't running no more. I'm going to go see something gay. We went and saw Pride. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that movie about, uh, about the Irish, um, uh, the coal mine strike. Yeah, the coal mine workers yeah. where the gay activists yeah, help the gay, out. Yeah, yeah. Got right. Um, I was like, hell, I'm just going to go to the art house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it was just really weird. There were still things to do, obviously, but, of course, the campaign manager had given everybody the day off because they, they – um, had worked their butts off and everybody shouldn't have to come in the next day. Uh, I think that there were people on the campaign who were more disappointed than me, to be honest with you. Um, and, and of course I was disappointed for them because I know they all worked really hard. Um, for me, it was not, I think if anything struck me as in like, Oh shit, it was not for a few weeks when I realized, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? <laughs> and here I am, still a year and a half later, thinking the same thing. That was Clay Aiken talking about his 2014 run for the House of Representatives. Thanks, as always, to Christine Canetta, who edits this podcast and puts it together like a sweet-selling Clay Aiken album. You can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes or at thehuffingtonpost.com. Tell everyone you know, even strangers, to subscribe to it, rate it, and review it. Tune in next week when we interview Tim Miller, the communications director for Jeb Bush's Low Energy presidential campaign in 2016. He has a lot of beans to spill. You're not going to want to miss that. Till then, dear listener, happy trails. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.